kind of hard to believe it's Sunday morning, but around the corner for Church in the Park. And for us, as we get ready for the fall, a lot of really great things are happening around here at Discovery. A lot of great things are coming uh, down the road. So before we get to Matthew and our next part of this conversation, I want to just do a little bit of housekeeping, go over a couple of things uh, that are coming up for us um, here in the next couple of weeks. So one of those is, uh, is actually happening today. So uh, here at Discovery, groups, small groups, we call them discovery groups, are a huge part of what we do about experiencing the life of our church, a place to grow and to process the things that you're learning uh, and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Our groups are going to start another season uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks, mid-September, late September is when the next round of groups uh, get going. Last uh, year around this time, we launched two brand new groups, and both of those uh, had a great year together, and so we're trying to uh, talk about what it might look like to start a couple new groups. And I've been emailing with a couple of you. If you are here this morning and, and you're new to Discovery, you're in between groups, you haven't been plugged into a group for a while, we'd just like to invite you to come uh, maybe about 10 minutes after the gathering. I'm going to talk through uh, a, a little bit of what that might look like. 10, 15 minutes will be uh, in the back room um, over here behind the stage uh, if you're interested in hearing about uh, our group philosophy and what a new group might look like. All right. Second thing I want to uh, tell you a little bit more about is um, <clears throat> last Sunday, we were in Matthew 24 and 25, and in particular ended in this place where Jesus talks about uh, caring for the sick and, and feeding the hungry and, and caring for the least of these. And one of the things that he talks about there is visiting those who are in prison. And I shared a little bit about that experience for me and some of the things I've been learning there and about our new friend, John, who uh, has been in the California Correctional Institute for a while. He just started writing churches in the area. Uh, we've struck up a little bit of a relationship via letter, and I invited you guys to be a part of that correspondence last Sunday. And, and we wrote as a community about 65 notes, I think is what the final tally was, and so really cool to be able to send those off to John this week. And I promise you, as soon as I hear back from him about that, I will be sharing with you uh, what that experience was like for him. So thank you for doing that. I think it was a really cool thing for our community uh, to step into. And we'll see what happens uh, with that as we move forward. One last thing, all right? Uh, this week uh, at work's probably one of the funnest weeks I've had like in our office since I've been the pastor of this church. So I'm back from vacation, Rolly's back from vacation, and then our newest staff member, Grace Cooper, uh, is here. And so last week was the first week that all three of us uh, were in the office. And man, the energy level is, is high, the creativity, just the conversations we're having, really, really fun. I am so excited uh, about our team and what that's going to look like moving forward. And I just want to say a couple things about children's ministry in particular as Grace gets started here. She is uh, a wonderful teacher when it comes to our kids. She loves kids and is going to do a great job pouring into them. She is also though one of the best leaders that I have ever worked with in 15-20 years of ministry. And, uh, and so I'm really excited not just for what she's going to do with, uh, with our kids but also with the team that she's going to build around that ministry. A couple months ago, I shared with you how I was driving around somewhere listening to a podcast. There's an organization called the Barna Group. Barna does a lot of surveying and data collection of uh, churches, looking at trends in the United States within the church. And they did a, a survey of kids and churches uh, and their kids' programs. And what they found is that uh, their estimation is 11% of kids who grow up in church right now will have what they call a resilient faith a faith that sticks with them as adults through all the ups and downs of adult life. One out of 10 kids growing up in church today will have 
what they define as a resilient faith. And as I was driving around, man, that was really a kick in the stomach. Because if you do the math on that, that means that if we have about 30 kids here every Sunday morning, three of those kids will have a resilient faith. And for us as a church that has historically said and continues to say that we care about discipleship, if we care about discipleship in the way of Jesus, then we need to care about the discipleship of the next generation, right, of followers of Jesus. We need to care about those kids. And so my challenge to you, my encouragement to you, if you have been serving in kids, is to keep going. If you have not been serving in kids, is to think about what it might mean for you to do that. Maybe even just once a month serving uh, under grace in the kids' ministry over there tremendous opportunity for kingdom impact, right, in the lives of our kids. If you want to know more about that, you can always ask me or you can email Grace. She'd love to tell you more about what that could look like. All right, let's pray and then we'll get started here in our next part of the Matthew conversation. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you are doing here in and through Discovery and that we get to be a part of it for the invitation to join in what you are already doing. This is not about us being uh, the most awesome church or having a great strategy or plan, but about being attentive to your prompting and to what you're already doing, the the work that you're already uh, laying the ground for and inviting us to be a part of. We are grateful for that invitation. Father, this morning we're also grateful for the reminder that your mercies are new every day. We live in a world where we're bombarded by bad news. Uh, where we're moving through difficult things in our own lives, so much information to process. Father, would you help us now to be attentive to your spirit? Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, a heart that's ready to respond to what you want to say to us today. Quiet our, our, our souls, our minds. Help us to take a deep breath and pause for just a moment so that we can be free to respond. God, we're grateful for what you have done in Jesus, through Jesus, on our behalf. And we just want to say that this morning. Everybody said, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 26. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone uh, on our team will run around. Make sure you have one of those. As you're finding that, let's begin here. Every community that I have lived in, for the most part, has some sort of like annual celebration that brings the whole community together. In Salinas, where I grew up, we have the California uh, Rodeo or Rodeo. There's huge debate in Salinas over how to pronounce that word. Um, But that brings a ton of people together. It's actually kind of a source of shame for me as a teenager. I thought it was like, oh, why do we have this thing in in our town? But people love it. It's a huge deal. The California Rodeo. In Durango, Colorado, where I lived for a couple of years, they have a week-long celebration in the winter called Snowdown. And uh, it, it sort of happens right at this very critical moment in the winter when you're thinking, like, can this go on anymore? Is there really more snow coming? But they take this whole week, and it's, it's, they call it uh, Colorado's premier winter celebration. Very bold claim. Uh, but it's, it's actually really fun, a very quirky event. People get dressed up and there's themes and costumes and a parade. And there's all these uh, uh, funny events that happen over the course of the week that you could sign up for. Like paper plane throwing contests. And then the one that I did every year was the cribbage tournament. All right, because that's how cool I am. It was actually a lot of fun. I got beat down by some old people every year. All right, here in Davis, we have picnic day, right? People come back, uh, alumni come back, the, the whole community comes out to celebrate picnic day. 
And then when we were living in Boston, the big event of every year is Marathon Monday or Patriots Day. All right, this day in April where everything in the city basically shuts down and uh, we celebrate running or Patriots or uh, the Red Sox play early. I don't, I don't even really know anymore what, it, what that day is all about, but it's a really big deal in Boston. Now, each of these events involve large groups of people. Typically, they're a lot of fun, and they add this kind of energy to that community when the event is going on. There's just this like extra buzz that's in the air when those moments are happening. Now, I begin here because as we begin this morning, and today is a big day in a sense because it's the last or it's the first day of the last section of Matthew. We've been working on this. It's going to end up being a 40-week journey through the book of Matthew. And we've split it up into uh, seven kind of mini-series or movements, all right? So today is the beginning of the final movement, the last three chapters of the book, which really cover the last days and hours of Jesus' life. So our text today begins at the beginning of chapter 26 by telling us that it's Passover, all right, Passover was one of the three big festivals that the people of Israel would celebrate every year. These festivals would draw people from all over the country to Jerusalem for one of those celebrations. And Passover was the big one. It was like if you could pick one of the three, this is the one you did not want to miss. It was their snowdown, it was their rodeo, it was their marathon Monday, it was their picnic day, right? Passover, big, big deal. Now, these events, these types of events, just in, in, in themselves, have a kind of weight to it, right? They have meaning to them because they, people have been doing these year after year, uh, these moments to get together and celebrate, to share in, in a communal story together, to share history together. Very formative moments for human beings. But then there are these times where something happens during one of these events that, that kind of changes it, that transforms it, that adds extra weight and meaning to it. Amy and I, we were still living in Boston in 2013 when two young men came to the finish line of the Boston Marathon that year with homemade bombs and set them off at the finish line. It was an interesting moment for us. We had been uh, involved in the marathon in different ways, mostly for me just as an observer or just like going down for the party. Amy had worked the event for a couple of years as a physical therapist uh, with her company this is the first year, though, that we didn't actually go to the marathon since we'd been living there. Our daughter Marina had been born a couple of months before, and so we kind of took the day off, and we were just watching the thing on TV when we see these explosions going off. And, and you can see, like, the Starbucks that I would write sermons in, like the windows blown out. And just this, this, like, what is happening in our city? And it was a moment that, that definitely brought Boston together, transformed, right, reshaped how people thought about that event, what it means to the city of Boston. What we're going to see here today and in the, the weeks coming uh, as we move through these last moments of Jesus' life, Jesus is going to reimagine, reshape what the Passover means. And especially for his disciples, they will never be able to celebrate this moment the same way again. So let's get into it here. And we'll come back to some of this stuff as we make our way through. But we begin in verse 1, and we're going to skip around a little bit to begin with, look at a couple of different scenes that give us a, a behind-the-scenes look at some of the wheels that are in motion, wheels that are going to be leading to Jesus' arrest 
and his crucifixion, all right? So beginning in verse 1, Jesus had finished saying all these things. If you were with us last Sunday, you know Jesus had a lot of things to say, right? We looked at two whole chapters, chapters 24 and 25, lots of things that Jesus had to say. He said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there might be a riot among the people. Now skip down to verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And him here refers to Jesus. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Now again, last week, uh, this massive teaching of Jesus, his final really big teaching section in the book of Matthew, that whole thing began with the question, the, uh, a question the disciples have about timing. When is this going to happen? When are you going to become king? When, when is your kingdom going to take effect? This new age where you are the king of your kingdom, when will that happen? And Jesus launches into this very long and, and at times confusing and convoluted teaching about the future and current events and it's going to be hard and difficult and you, no one's going to know exactly what's going on and no one definitely knows the time and the hour that it's going to take place. And it's very interesting, right? The very next thing that happens, Jesus gives them a timeline. Two days and I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. Now, after this, Matthew pulls the curtain back, introduces us to a new character named Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the leader of the religious leaders. And we've seen for a long time now in this journey through Matthew that Jesus is in conflict with the religious leadership, right? This has been brewing and building for a long, long time. Now all of a sudden Caiaphas is involved. They're making these deals in the back room of a palace, scheming. How do we get rid of Jesus? But still afraid, right? Afraid of the crowd, afraid of a riot. And this is not just about, you know, having a riot. This is also about their relationship with Rome. Rome already looked down on these festivals, didn't like the festivals and all the extra people that they brought into town. Usually there would be some kind of disturbance that they would have to deal with. And so they want to figure out, okay, how can we do this? How can we get rid of Jesus, but then also not cause a scene and then have the, the, the Romans decide no more festivals? All right? so they're trying to play again all these different sides of the game. And they're doing it in secret. And they're doing it in, in, in closed rooms. One of the things Matthew wants us to see as we move through these final couple of chapters, these dealings are not legit. Nothing above board about what's going on here. Now skip ahead, verse 14. Again, Judas shows up. The leaders here catch a lucky break. One of Jesus' closest followers approaches them and says, I can do this. I can set this up. I can do it in a way that's sort of under the radar, that, that won't cause a big scene. So the wheels are in motion, wheels that will lead to Jesus being crucified. Now in between these kind of ugly backroom dealings comes one of the most beautiful stories of Scripture. Look at verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. 
When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We'll talk about this woman more in just a moment, but I want to say a few more things about Judas. We haven't done a lot of uh, comparison between Matthew and the other accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, Mark, Luke, and John. But we're now getting into the part of the book where these scenes take place in all four uh, of the Gospels. And so there's a lot of comparison that can be done. And, and the way that the different writers handle Judas is very interesting. Matthew presents uh, Judas a little bit differently. Luke and John in particular emphasize Satan's role in influencing Judas. Luke says Satan entered into Judas. John says Satan prompted him. And John, when it comes to this scene, specifically names Judas as the one who has a problem with the woman anointing Jesus. And, and John says that, you know, he was in charge of the money. He cared a lot about money. Matthew, though, does very little interpretive work when it comes to his portrayal of Judas. And this is interesting for us, okay, as Matthew presents it to us. I think one of the things he's trying to do here is to show how any of the disciples could have been Judas. And in this scene in particular, all the disciples are indignant, right? All the disciples ask, why the waste? It isn't until verse 14 that Judas emerges by name. And even then, Matthew refers to him as part of the collective, one of the twelve. There's a thing going on here that could have happened to any of them. There's a pull away from God's kingdom, God's purposes, towards our own thing, our own purposes, that can grab any of us. And I think when it comes to Judas, it's very easy to turn him into the boogeyman, right? Like, oh, he's the bad guy in the story. I think Matthew wants us to see it could have been anyone. Now, there's all kinds of interesting contrasts going on in each of our scenes today. Very intentional contrast between the twelve and this mysterious unnamed woman. Here, Matthew, yet again, elevating a woman in the story, right? Including her actions in this vital role. Preparing Jesus for burial. Now the scene begins with Jesus outside of Jerusalem at Bethany. This is a little bit to uh, the east of Jerusalem. At the home of a guy named Simon the leper. Most likely Simon, someone that Jesus has healed prior to this. But that leper label still attached to his identity. Jesus, yet again, choosing to spend time with, to hang out with, to share a meal with an outsider. And hold that in contrast, Jesus dining at the table of Simon the leper with the religious leaders who are in the back room of a palace scheming to kill him. In the middle of this scene, a mysterious woman comes, dumps this jar of very expensive perfume on Jesus' head. And this is one of those things that sounds really weird to us, right? Like, what is going on here? If I uh, am invited over to your house and you dump perfume on my head, I'm probably not going to come back, okay? I just warn you ahead of time. 
Now, there, there, is, uh, uh, there is a custom uh, going on here, okay? When you would go to someone's house for a meal, oftentimes they would perfume you. You would bring with you all kinds of scents and smells from life and the travel to get there. And so there'd be this little dab of perfume that a good host would put on someone's head before the meal started. But this is not what she is doing. Matthew says she pours it on him, right? This is not preparing for a meal. We're told the perfume was very expensive. And there's a number of different ways people interpret this or try to explain what, what does that mean. Some people see it as part of her dowry, right? This would be part of what she would offer to a man who, who wanted to marry her. Others look at it as part of her uh, security blanket, almost like a 401k. Either way, this bottle of perfume is tied to her identity and to her security. And she's sacrificing these things, these, these, uh, this thing that represents her identity and security and pours it on Jesus. Right, this is an extravagant, sacrificial gift. And again, should be held in contrast very much with the 30 pieces of silver that Judas sells Jesus out for. This was not that much money. Definitely would not have been able to buy this bottle of perfume. The extravagance is hard for the disciples to see, right? This is what gets them riled up. What a waste. But there's a whole lot more going on here. This, the, by dumping this perfume on Jesus, the woman... Again, not just prep for a meal. This is preparing for burial. This is the kind of thing that you did to a dead body. This woman, who may or may not have been around in verse 2 when Jesus said, two days and I'm going to be crucified. I would argue that she was, by the way. If you look at Luke, particularly Luke 8 and 9, it talks about how Jesus had this, this fairly significant group of women with him who were a, a very critical part of his ministry. Either way, she understood what was about to happen. She understood Jesus is going to die. He's going to be handed over to be crucified. This anointing for burial ha has uh, led many scholars to believe that she was pouring out myrrh. Myrrh was oftentimes used to prepare a body for burial. And we've seen myrrh before. If you've been around for this journey through Matthew, this goes all the way back to Matthew chapter 2. Magi, these mysterious characters from the east, show up looking for Jesus, the king of the Jews. They bring three gifts. They bring gold, very common gift, signifying royalty. They bring frankincense, signifying that at some level they understood Jesus to be divinity. And then they bring myrrh. And this is the outlier, right? This is the weird one. Why would you bring ointment for a dead body to a baby child's king? This is interesting, right? At the very beginning of the story and now here at the end of the story, these mysterious characters reminding us that Jesus as Savior, as King, as Messiah came to die. Came here on a mission to give his life as a ransom for many. To make it possible for us through his death and resurrection to be in right relationship with God and with each other. They got it. At some level, they understood what this story was all about. The disciples still don't get it, right? Are still struggling with this. Again, their objection to what the woman does is presented as financial. 
And we need to give them, once again, a, a little bit of grace here. They just listened to Jesus give this really long teaching that culminated in what? Take care of the least of these. Right? Feed the hungry. Take care of the sick. Clothe the naked. Visit those who are in prison. It's very much still on their minds when they say this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Think of all the people we could have fed. Think of all the medicine we could have bought. Their indignation is a picture into a tension that continues to plague followers of Jesus to this very day. The disciples struggle to accept both the king and the kingdom. And we've seen this before. They go, they go back on this all the time. Sometimes they want the king, but then Jesus starts talking about the kingdom and what it's going to look like and who it's going to include. And they're like, oh, I don't really know if I'm down for that. Hey, I got to eat dinner with those people? Now here they are. They're finally starting to get the kingdom vision, uh, but they're struggling with this king who's going to die. Attention, that continues to trip people up today. King or kingdom, and we might say it this way, worship or justice. For those with a justice kingdom orientation, worship is always going to feel extravagant and wasteful. Why get together in a theater on a Sunday morning and spend money to rent this building out when we could be meeting so many needs out there in the world? For those with a worship king orientation, justice is always going to feel a little too political, a little too worldly, not quite spiritual enough. Why are we always talking about these social issues? We need to be studying the Bible more or whatever. Once again, Jesus inviting us into integration. The unity of spiritual orientation as we've been talking about it, right? You cannot have one posture towards God and another towards people. You cannot have one posture towards the king and another towards the kingdom. You can't have worship without justice and you cannot have justice without rightly ordered worship. And so in this woman's actions, we get an incredible picture of the good news of Jesus, what the kingdom of right relationships looks like. Jesus is hanging out at the home of Simon the leper, eating dinner a couple of nights before he goes to, to do what he came for. He's hanging out with Simon the leper. Don't miss the significance of that. And then he's readied for his sacrificial death by this unnamed woman. This is a picture of justice, of right relationships. And it's also a picture of worship. Of costly, extravagant, wasteful worship. Of someone who recognizes Jesus for who he really is. The woman moves towards Jesus, Judas moving away from Jesus. The woman accepting what Jesus has to do to bring about salvation, Judas resisting it. The woman, uh, her actions look wrong. They look wasteful, but they're truly good and beautiful. Judas wants to do something good. He wants to serve the poor, but he wants to do it in an ugly way. Jesus brings integration, unites justice and worship. We see all of that in this woman. And I think this is what Jesus says. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told. 
And she's in all four of the Gospels. Her story lives on. And I don't know about you, but I have a list of people I can't wait to meet in heaven. She's on that list. Now, all these threads come together in the final scene, verse 17 uh, through 30. Jesus, again, reimagining the Passover celebration for his disciples. We're going to take a few moments to remember what the Passover is all about. In the book of Exodus, this goes all the way back to Exodus, the second book in our Bibles, the people of God, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in slavery in Egypt. They're making bricks for an oppressive empire. Every day for them is the same. They wake up, they make bricks for Pharaoh, they go to bed, they repeat the cycle the next day for 400 years. And finally, God intervenes. God chooses an exile named Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And Moses and Pharaoh, they have this ongoing back and forth. Moses shows up, says, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. God sends a plague. Bunch of bugs, bunch of frogs. River turns to blood, all this weird stuff. And Pharaoh's like, oh, yeah, okay, you guys can go. And then as they're leaving, he, he realizes, oh, my goodness, this is like my whole labor force is about to leave. No, never mind, you have to stay. And this happens nine different times. Finally, the tenth time, God says, okay, this process is over. Tonight is the night. And he gives this very weird set of instructions to his people. He instructs them to find a lamb, a baby sheep without defect, perfect lamb, to kill it, to paint its blood on their doorposts, and then to eat a meal while they're all packed up and dressed and ready to go because when it's time to go, it's time to go. We need to talk a little bit more about this lamb, this symbol of the Passover. The lamb represented a need for a substitute. It was a stand-in for the firstborn child of every household in Egypt. Every house that had blood on the doorpost had a covering for the firstborn. And as God passed over, the firstborn would live. Every house that did not have blood on the doorpost, the firstborn would die. Now this sounds weird and crazy. But it's also deeply, deeply symbolic. In the ancient Near East, the firstborn was vital to the life of the family. They stood for the family. They represented the future of the family. They were the link from one generation to another. And when it came to Pharaoh in particular, the firstborn was the heir, the next in line for the throne. The firstborn was their national security policy, if you will. So, they, they follow these instructions. They kill these lambs. They put the blood on the doorpost. Yahweh, the Lord, passes over. And again, those who have blood on the doorposts, the firstborn is spared. And then the people escape slavery to freedom. Now, over time, that meal becomes this ritual known as the Passover, the celebration, a way of remembering this is what God has done for us. 400 years of slavery and oppression, and now we are free. Now along comes Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of Mary. He, according to the New Testament writer Paul, the firstborn of creation. He's also referred to as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, his arrival, his embodiment, his incarnation means 
No more animal stand-in. A once and for all sacrifice. This is a new exodus. Jesus calls it a new covenant. Only this time God is going to hold up both sides of the bargain. And Jesus says, here is a new meal to celebrate, to remember this is what God has done for us. Freedom from the oppression and slavery of sin. Freedom to be in right relationship with God and with each other. Now we call this meal here at Discovery Communion. Other traditions will will stick to the Greek roots and, and call this the Eucharist. This word Eucharist is very interesting it's in our text today, verse 26, when, Je- when it says that Jesus gives thanks, it says Jesus Eucharisted. <laughs> it's thankful, grateful. And then it gets even more interesting when you break the word down. You means good and charis means gift. Eucharist, gratitude, good gift. So for us, communion has now become a ritual representing the truth That God has given us a good gift in Jesus. That God has painted blood on the doorposts of the universe. That God has passed over our sin. Because of the good gift of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so now, new life, new creation, even new humanity. When we worship the King and live in the kingdom, we are, the New Testament writers say, part of the body of God. Of Christ, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What does this mean? This means that a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is a living Eucharist. A good gift, broken and poured out for the healing of the world. And a church is a Eucharist movement. A church should be good news for the community in which it is embedded. Now as we get ready for our celebration of community this morning, or of communion this morning, just a couple of questions for us. And then I'll have a couple more thoughts and then the band will come and we'll do this together today. I want us to begin getting ready for this by thinking about which character in the story do you identify with the most? Now, of course, no one's going to raise their hand and go, oh, yeah, Judas. Totally identify with that guy. However, (laughs) however, remember how Matthew presents him, right? This could be any of us. And there are countless ways in which we try to build the kingdom on our own. Or we're trying to build our own kingdom. And so the question today maybe is, do you need to recognize that? Do you need to confess that I have been building this thing on my own? I've been building my own kingdom. And I wanna, I'm going to give that up. I need to start building God's kingdom. I want in to this thing called the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you identify with the disciples, kind of stuck between these two paradigms, struggling to hold the king and kingdom together. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you feel indignant at times. Maybe there are other times where it's all kind of making sense, but you're sort of in between those two paradigms. Maybe the invitation today is to just trust this good news, to give thanks for the good gift of Jesus. Then maybe you identify with this woman. You have been so 
overwhelmed by what this good gift is and means for you, that you're just ready to go. You're ready to worship. You're ready to pour out and to sacrifice in response to what God has done for us through Jesus. So I encourage you to think a little bit about which of those characters do you identify with this morning. Now communion, for us, joyful, we're, we're grateful every time we come to this table. But at this moment in the story, the disciples are, are, are struggling, right? This is heavy for them. They're confused, they're hurting, their heads are spinning, they don't know how this is going to end. In 2014, the Boston Marathon is the most highly attended Boston Marathon in history. More people came out the next year than at any other point in time. And it was interesting to see how that event got transformed by that moment of tragedy. It stopped being, at least for that year, about a day off from work or a day to party. And it started to be more about a celebration of life. And one of the interesting stories that happened that year is the, the winner, the, the male winner of the race was an American. The first time an American had won the Boston Marathon in over 30 years. And in a kind of a fun twist of events, the, the guy that won, his name is Meb Kaflesgi, an American citizen, but also an Eritrean refugee. And just to watch that community respond to that and to him was a beautiful thing. And, and, and not to take the illustration too far, but I think it's a parable in a lot of ways for how these moments can be transformed. How through the death and resurrection of Jesus, something tragic can become beautiful. How a meal as simple as the Passover can become this reminder for us of what God has done on our behalf. Beauty overcoming life, or beauty and life overcoming darkness, right? The disciples, again, confused, upset, and in the middle of all this, Jesus makes them this promise. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. Death, yes, but death is not the last word. That day, Jesus says, that day when we will share this meal and drink from this cup again, it will be a day of celebration, a day of feasting because of the resurrection. There's resurrection and life on the other side of death. Communion is this reminder of that for us. That through Jesus, God has passed over our sin and makes a way for us to be in right relationship with him and with each other. Now, even though it doesn't make a ton of sense, one of the best responses to this good news is to sing. Look at how this story ends. They sing a hymn, and then they go out together. Now, here at Discovery, we, we believe that there's far more to worship than just singing some songs, and yet there is something about the act of singing that is humbling, that is an appropriate response of gratitude to what God has done for us. I want us to keep all of this in mind this morning as we celebrate communion together. We're going to do it a little bit differently than we normally do. In just a moment, I will pray and the band will come back. They're going to lead us through one song. During that one song, I want you to go to one of the four stations here and grab the elements, that bread uh, representing Jesus' body. Dip it maybe lightly this morning into the juice representing his blood and then take it back to your seat with you. 
And when we're done with this first song, I'm going to come back and lead us through uh, taking the elements together. Okay? Keep in mind some of the things that we've been talking about, which character you identify with, why we sing in response to the good news. And then uh, after I pray and the band leads us in a song, we'll take communion together. So pray with me. Father, we uh, uh, begin by identifying with the disciples, with the 12 disciples. Uh, recognizing that in so many ways we are still stuck in this process uh, of fully embracing Jesus as king and his kingdom. The, the options or the contrast between Judas and the woman then stand out very strongly to us, God. We want to be drawn closer to you. We want to move towards Jesus. And so we confess whatever we need to confess. We uh, admit our need for you, our need to turn from the things that we pursue in order to fully pursue you. So we begin in confession, and then, God, we are so grateful for the good gift of Jesus. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, you promise that you pass over all of the ways that we have made a mess of our lives, that we've broken relationship with you and with other people. So Father, I pray that you would, uh, again, challenge us this morning in, in what response we need to take, but that as we do this together, we would remember and celebrate that Jesus is good news and that we can be good news as well when we follow in his ways. We pray all this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.